be seated. Take your Bible, and I want you to turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I've decided we're going to skip chapters 11 through 19. Just checking, just checking to see if you are paying attention. We're not going to skip, but I wanted to read something from John 20 to you. You're all like, he lost his mind. What has happened? John chapter 20. And I believe we read these verses probably back on the first Sunday of January. Because in John 20, we see the, the point of this letter or this gospel. And so if you found John 20, find verse 30. And we'll read those two verses there. It says, In many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Go back to chapter 11, John 11. You see, the, the point of this entire, <coughs> excuse me, this gospel according to John is that we would read it and see all that Christ did and in reading it and seeing it that we would believe that Christ is who he said he was and which is the Son of God. He is God. And this book began that way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning all things were created through him and by him. And so from the very beginning of this book to the very end, it's all about pointing to Christ and his deity and who he is. And so along the way, as we've studied 10 chapters so far, there are at least, and most scholars point to seven major signs that point to Christ's deity. I want to give those to you quickly. In John 2, we know that Jesus changed water into wine, his first sign. In John 4... He healed the royal official's son. In John 5, we studied how he healed the a paralytic at the pool. In John 6, the first part of John 6, he fed 5,000 plus with fish and loaves. In the next part of John 6, he walked on water. And of course, in John 9, we talked about him healing the man born blind. That is six signs or six miracles done by Christ to show that he was who he said he was. And as we now approach John chapter 11, even though we have many chapters left to study here, we, and in the timeline of this, we are getting very near to the crucifixion. We're getting very near to the arrest of Christ, the trials, and the death of Christ. And as we come to this climactic section of the life of Jesus, he gives us one more big public sign that says, I am God. And that sign, as you can see there on the screen, and as you see in John 11, is the death, and more specifically, we'll see next week, the raising of Lazarus. It's going to be amazing to me, as we study this in the next couple of weeks, that Jesus raises this 
uh, dead man, and this is actually the third person he raises, but this, I think, was the most special of the three for a few reasons. But it's amazing that even though he does this and the word spreads, Jesus actually raised Lazarus. You can go see him, and he's alive now. He was dead, he's alive. Yet many people still did not believe in him. As a matter of fact, the opposite happened. It riled up the enemies of Christ even more to where they eventually plotted for his arrest. Did you know that this uh, miracle, an interesting fact here, it's found not in any of the other Gospels. Only in the Gospel of John do we find the raising of Lazarus. And there's many reasons why that might be the case, but ultimately that's what God wanted, right? And so that's why it's only in the Gospel of John. So before we get to our chapter and read some of these verses, remember last week, Jesus uh, had basically, they were about to stone him down in Jerusalem, and so he escapes and gets out of there and goes north and east over across the Jordan, and he's winning people, he's, he's preaching to people, people are coming to believe in him, and that's kind of where we are. But in our story, he's going to get word that he might need to go back down there where he just left, where the danger was, which I think is very, very interesting. Let's read this miracle and and actually, we're not going to get to the miracle today. We're going to set it up. And I want to say one more thing about this before we read it. I think we are, I don't think I know, we're jaded by television, movies, internet. We're jaded, special effects, right? We've seen so much just in our lifetimes through those mediums that uh, we just, we're inundated with all this stuff. And it makes me wonder if, you know, we lack all when we read some of these miracles of Christ because we're so inundated with you know technology and, and things but I hope we would not listen to this even this preface even this first part of this I hope we would not listen to it casually but with our mind and heart receiving what God would have for us John 11 if you found verse 1 say word Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbles not, because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbles, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well, he shall wake up. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent you may believe, 
Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, would you bless the preaching of this word? I pray that the word would do the talking this morning through your spirit. May we be ready to receive it. In Christ's name, amen. I want to walk back through this text with you and just point out a few things. Again, this is just the preface to this miracle. We'll have to wait till next week to kind of get into the, uh, the major part of it, I guess, the climax of it. But there's still, I think, so much here. Uh, I know I've preached this text before at least a couple of times, but I, I certainly believe that um, I found more this time than, than I have ever before uh, that really spoke to me and encouraged me in my own walk. And I hope that'll do the same for you. Uh, so look back at the first two verses. And we're introduced here to a certain man. His name is Lazarus, and he lives in a place called Bethany, a small town, small village near Jerusalem. And he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. And truthfully, we don't know a lot about Lazarus. For a man that we mention a lot and we, we think about, we know his story, we don't really know a lot about him. His name means God is my help. I think that's an appropriate name for Lazarus. But what we do know, and what the main point of verse 1 is, is this man is very sick. And so because he's sick, look at verse 3. Let me mention verse 2 first. He mentions in a parentheses there, basically, that Mary anoints Jesus' feet. And we're going to see that, actually, in chapter 12. And so he's just pointing to the fact that Jesus knows these siblings. Look at verse 3. So the sisters send word to Christ, and they say this, Lord, the one you love... The one whom you love is sick. Again, Jesus had a relationship with his family, and so it's only natural that they might send word to let him know someone is sick. We do that, don't we? If we hear of someone sick, someone hurting, and we certainly want to spread that information to family members and, and church family. Um, that's a good thing to do. And so they did that. They sent word through a messenger to go to Christ and say, the one whom you love is sick. I, I love the way they worded that. They didn't say, Jesus, come right away. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, this or that. They said, Lord, the one you love is sick. And one person said about this text, and I like this, when nothing else will, love moves a heart. Well, that's pretty interesting. When nothing else will, love moves a heart. They were appealing to the relationship they had with Christ that he might in some way help in their situation. We know that the Father loves us. Christ loves us. And love moved him to the Father to send his Son. And love moved the, the Son to go to the cross for sinners like us. And I pray that love would move us uh, to serve others for Christ. So surely, surely as I read verse 3, and Jesus gets this, this message, Behold, the one you love is sick. Surely Jesus is going to immediately drop all he's doing and run to Bethany. Right? Don't you think so? Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness, this illness, this sickness is not unto death, but it is for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Verse 4 leads us to our first point of the day, of three. And the first truth of today is God's glory is of supreme importance. I've always found that phrase, God's glory, or the glory of God, 
hard to define because there are many different ways you can try to define it. It's not as plain as some things. Like if we met someone in a foreign country who said, and you said, you know, have you ever seen a basketball? And they're like, I don't know what a basketball looks like. I could say, well, I could define that. It's a round object. You inflate it with air. It's usually orange. It bounces on the ground, right? You can, I can kind of define that. And then I could say, so here's a football, a golf ball, a baseball, and a basketball, and they could pick it out, right? Oh, that's the one you just described. You defined it. I can pick it out. That's an easy thing to define. But when it comes to this idea of God's glory and all the reading I've done and through Scripture and, and other things, it's hard to get a good definition of what does that mean. And, and I'm not going to give you a good definition today because I just don't know how to truly define it in a great way. But I think God's glory speaks to his greatness, his holiness, when we think about his holiness, we think about him being separate, set apart, different. There's none like him. And so I think about his infinite worth, his beauty, his, the char- his character and all that he is, the beauty of that. Not a physical beauty like we think of, but just a, a, the beauty of his character. And again, I'm not giving you a good definition because, again, it's, it's hard to find one. Someone said the, the, the glory of God is the fact that he is in a class by himself. John Piper said the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. The glory of God is the going public of his holiness. It's his fame, his worth, and again, the beauty of his character. I mentioned the glory of God to you because the text does. In verse 4, Jesus doesn't run down to Bethany. He doesn't immediately drop what he's doing and leave. Instead, he makes this amazing statement, the sickness of Lazarus, his, his illness, is not about death, it's not leading to death. It has a purpose, and the purpose of it is that God would be glorified, and that the Son of God might be glorified. So who is going to be glorified by the death and eventually the resurrection of Lazarus, God or Christ? Yes, both, right? Both will be glorified. And it is true that when we glorify Christ, and when Christ is glorified, then the Father is glorified. When Christ is believed, when we believe in Christ, we believe the Father. When we trust Christ, we trust the Father. When we worship Christ, we worship uh, the, the Trinity. Who is glorified? They all are. The point is this. The point of that statement and the point of, again, the whole book we're studying is that Jesus Christ is not just, not just a man, not just a messenger, but he is very God. And this verse, you know, these, these Jews, many of them would think, you know, that he is anti the God of the Old Testament. And he's saying, no, I'm from the God of the Old Testament. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am Christ, the Son of God, worthy of glory and worthy of praise. And what I'm about to do here in a moment, in a few days, is going to bring glory to the Father and to me. I think about the glory of God and how that affects our lives. And Psalm 115 is a verse I've thought about for years and, and love for years. Psalm 115.1 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us but to your name be the glory. That'd be a good life verse, wouldn't it? Don't give me the praise, don't give me the glory, God, but bring it to your name. I think about Isaiah 43, 7, where God says, I created all these people and I made them and I formed them. And why did he do it? Isaiah 43, 7 says, I made them for my glory. And so when it comes to the illness of Lazarus, we understand that it's ultimately for the glory of God. That Christ would go, as we're going to see maybe next week, 
that Christ would go, raise him from the dead, and in doing so, Christ would show his sovereign power over death and show his deity. I wonder if we have this perspective. I wonder if verse 4 could help someone this morning to have a perspective of, you know, if God is sovereign and we believe he is, then everything that happens to us is meant somehow to be used for the glory of God. Do we have that perspective? No matter what sickness, no matter what tribulation or trial comes in your life, can you say in your heart of hearts, I know somehow God's going to use that for his glory. Even if it hurts me, may God be glorified through it. What a perspective I hope we can have. So our first, first truth today, God's glory is of supreme importance. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Again, right, Jesus surely is going to run to Bethany. Here's what it says in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. And so when he heard, therefore, that Lazarus was sick, he abode or stayed or remained two days still in the same place where he was. Did he immediately run to Bethany? No. Oh, two more days he waited. It, I was thinking of an illustration for this. What if you woke up in the middle of the night and you smell something, you walk into your kitchen and the kitchen's on fire, I mean a pretty big fire, and you call 911. Hello, may I help you? Well, my, my house is about to burn down. I need help. And what if the dispatcher or the operator said, well, we'll be there in a couple hours. Is that good? No, you need help now. You don't need to delay when you call 911, right? They, the sisters, and we're going to see this, by the way, if you look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother had not died. They sent word, but verse 21 tells us that they did expect him to come. I'm sure they didn't think Jesus would get word, the one you love is sick, and you know what, he's going to hang out for two days, didn't come. But Jesus responds to a desperate plea with a delay. When I read these two verses, it almost sounds like a contradiction. Verse 5, he loves them. Verse 6, he's delaying. But we know the Bible has no contradictions. There's no contradictions. And here's, my, here's a point before we get to that point. Jesus can love people. Listen to me. Jesus can love you and still allow you to suffer, right? He just does. God loved Job, and he suffered more than any of us, right? It had to be agonizing for these sisters. Again, verse 21, they expected him to come. But why, did, the question is this, why did Jesus delay? Why didn't he go down? Why did he wait two more days? Here's what I have in my notes. Jesus deliberately waited that he might bring Lazarus back from the dead after he had been in the tomb four days. He allowed Lazarus and his dead body to go through that decomposition, not to be gross, but that decomposition. And the Jews were not like the Egyptians. The Egyptians would really take care of those bodies. The Jews would bury people quickly, not really using bombing, and just bury them. And so Lazarus, four days... Uh, that would not be a pretty sight. I also found this interesting. I'd never heard this before. Maybe I had and forgot it, I think. But um, there was a Jewish tradition. Many Jews uh, thought that when a body died, the spirit would just hover around the body for a couple of days before going on to its resting place. 
And so some have speculated, maybe Jesus waited four days in total so they would just know for sure that he raised him truly from the dead. Again, that's just speculation. But the point of verse 6 is that Jesus' delay had a purpose. Here's a little nugget for you, a note for you. God's delays in our lives have a purpose. Have you ever prayed, wanted something to happen, and that thing didn't happen in the time you want it to, when you want it to, how you wanted it to? Here's a little point for us. When God doesn't do things just the way I want him to do things, do I begin to doubt his love for me? Again, look at verses 5 and 6 together. He loved them, but he delayed. He loved them, but he waited. And church, I made you sing it a minute ago, even though it was, that was an unplanned situation. Jesus loves me, this I know. How many of us have sang that or heard that our whole lives? From the time we're children, that's put in our minds. John 3, 16, for God so what? Loved us. That's been put in our minds. We've heard over and over again, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And that's stuck in us. But I wonder if, if we're going to be real with ourselves this morning, are there times in your life when things don't go the way you expect them or when God maybe responds with a delay in your life where somewhere inside you doubt his the fullness of his love for you. Think that's possible? Or are we just so faithful that we never have any doubts of his love for us? John Owen, the Puritan, said, one of the worst things we can ever do is doubt the love of God for us. And so I wonder if there's people in here this morning who maybe a relationship hasn't worked out like you thought. Maybe a job situation hasn't worked out like you thought. Maybe you've got a sickness or a family member is sick or going through some kind of trial and things haven't worked out like you expected. And if you'll be honest with yourself this morning, you might say, somewhere in here, I'm, I'm just doubting. I'm doubting a little bit that God truly loves me the way I've always been taught. And I want to call you to see that, I don't know, verses 5 and 6 together as I've studied them this week, he loved them, but he delayed. Maybe it's possible that God loves you if you're his child, and yet he still delays. And it or allows you to go through difficult things. Let me give you a text that, for me, helps to drive out the doubt. It's not up there. You just got to listen to it. It's Romans 8. And it goes like this, and we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him, those who've been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously and freely give us all things? Who is to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who's raised and who's at the right hand of God interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am confident that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Should we ever doubt the love of God for his people? If you do, I challenge you to go to Romans 8 and read through some of that. I was reminded as I thought about this of another text in Psalm 13. I'll read it to you. David wrote, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Have you ever felt that way? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. But then he says this. David says, But... In all that, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And I read Romans 8, and I read Psalm 13, and I look at John 11, 5, and 6, and I want so much for me and for you to have that kind of peace and hope and comfort and trust that we do not doubt the love God has for us. I want that. I think I have glimpses of it in my life. I bet you do too. I think I have glimpses of it here and there of really understanding, wow, he really does love me through this situation. But I'm you know, ashamed to say I think I don't have it enough. And I want it more for me and for you. <clears throat> to know that in my best season and in my worst, <clears throat> he's the same and he is always good. So our second truth, God's delay, or perceived delay, does not diminish his love. Verse 7. So then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And his disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee and are you going to go there again? Verse 7 and 8, he's like, okay, finally we're going to go. It's been two days. And they're like, uh, Jesus, we were just down there, and they tried to stone you. Are you crazy? Are you serious? Are we doing this? Is that really where we need to go? Then look at his response in verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbles not because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walks in the night, he stumbles because there is no light in him. Let me ask an interesting question. I hope it's interesting. Could Jesus have stayed where he was and healed Lazarus? Might be, might be an interesting Wednesday night discussion. I think he could, right? Was Jesus afraid to go back toward Jerusalem? No? We've read time and time again, haven't we, in the study, and it's a little phrase, we've read it a few times. It was not yet his what? Time. Not yet his time. And he knew about his time, didn't he? And that's what he says in 9 and 10. He's giving them this little illustration. He says there's 12 hours in the day, and the idea is that you wake up, you have a certain amount of daylight to get your work done, right? And then, then the day's over, especially for them back in that day. We have more, obviously, more lights now. 
But for them, they had to get up and get their work done in a certain amount of time. And so the point Jesus is saying is, I've got a certain amount of time here. We have a certain amount of time. I have a certain amount of time to do my work, to do the thing God's called me to do. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not about to let anybody deter him from doing the work that God had called him to do, was he? It's pretty interesting to think about. I'm a believer that we should take care of ourselves and go to the doctor when we're sick. And if you're bad sick, I'd be bad sick to go. Um, you know, I'm a believer that we should take care of our bodies the best we can, that kind of stuff. But when it comes down to it, God's given us an amount of time, hasn't he? And that's the time he's given us to, to, to use for him. And that is my third point, my third truth. That God gives us the time to accomplish all he calls us to do. And I find that again in verses 9 and 10. As he makes his statement to these disciples, they're like, aren't you afraid? Are you really going to go down there? And he says, no, I have time. The, the time that the Father's given me is my time to serve. And I want to say to us as believers, God gives us time to accomplish all he calls us to do as well. Now, some days we don't feel like there's enough time, do we, to do all that we have to do. All of us say that sometimes. There's not enough time in the day to, to get, done, get things done. But the reality is, if we trust the Lord and trust his word, he gives us time to do what he wants us to do. But oftentimes we misuse our time or don't redeem the time. And I would call us this morning to, like Christ did through his entire life and here in this story, that we would use our time for the glory of God. That we would do our best to, again, redeem the time. You see, Jesus was so focused on accomplishing the Father's will that he was not going to let anything stop him. All right? Nothing was going to stop him. The, all the stones, all the enemies, all the Pharisees, all the, maybe the pressure of all that was not going to stop him. And I wonder if we allow things in our lives to stop us. I know we do. Maybe it's internal things like our pride, our sin. We allow that to keep us down and keep us from serving God and accomplishing the goals he set out for us. Maybe it's external things like peer pressure or enemies or the busyness of life. But if we're going to follow this kind of principle of John 11, 9, and 10, of walking in the day, serving God while we have time, one helpful thing is what the writer of Hebrews said, that we would keep our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith and run our race with endurance. As Paul said, that we would um, know that he would begin, complete the work he began in us. So again, I hope that's just a, a golden nugget there of, of application um, to redeem our time. Can I say this to you as a side note? No time you spent here as a church family is, is wasted. Prayer meeting on Sunday morning back here as we pray, not wasted. Our time in here together, just an hour a week or so, not wasted. Wednesday night, not wasted. Other things you might do out there as you maybe call to check on someone or cook someone a meal or encourage someone, not wasted. And you are, you're needed as a part of this church family and you are, and you need the church family. It's not wasted. We were, I was joking with someone last week about a Wednesday night and it was, you know, earlier in the year it was a Wednesday night. I just didn't feel good. I was like, I just don't feel like going tonight. I'm tired. I don't really feel good. 
but I just went anyway, right? Went anyway, and as soon as I got here, I was enjoying it. And all the way home, I'm driving like, man, that was such a blessing. And I would have missed that blessing if I would have just stayed home, you know, from that. And, and, and I'm just telling you, we need, it's, it's a good use of your time to be with your church family. Side note. Look at verse 11. And we're going to read through 16, which is where we'll stop. These things said he, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps. But I go that I may wake him out of sleep. And of course, sleep is used a couple of times in Scripture to describe death. But his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to be all right. That's basically what they said in verse 12. He's going to be okay if he's asleep. But it says in verse 13, Jesus spoke of his death. He spoke of the death of Lazarus, but they thought he'd talk about resting. And so Jesus, as he has to often do to the disciples, and probably to us too, he said it plainly, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Then he says something strange. But I'm glad for your sakes, for your sakes, that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. He's glad, he says, which is kind of a weird thing to say. But the idea is he's glad that he's going to go and perform this miracle and show these disciples something amazing. He's already shown them so many amazing things. And he's going to show them something even greater than the things he's already showed them. Look at verse 16. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, called the, he's called the twin some say it's because he looked like Jesus. They called him the twin, but that's an interesting thing to study. But Thomas said, let us go also that we may die with him. I don't know how to say this. I think in the past, I think I've preached this verse incorrectly, and I think I've probably heard it preached incorrectly. Um, so, in verse 16, is Thomas displaying bold faith? You know what, guys? He's going, he's decided to go, he's waited two days, but he's going to a place where they almost stoned him. It's going to be dangerous. Let's go with him and lay down our lives with him. Or, in this statement, is Thomas saying, you know what, he's going, we're going, and none of us are going to survive. Is it more of a, let's go, or here we go, and we're fearful? I'm not going to tell you which one I'm picking, we'll discuss that Wednesday night, and that'll be fun. So, 1 through 16 of John 11, it's a preface. It sets the stage for this amazing miracle. I hope you'll, you'll come back next week to hear the rest of it. But as I you know, conclude this, understand when Jesus goes and does the miracle, the purpose of it, as he says here in this text, as we saw in John 20, is that more people might believe. And in believing, have faith and have life in him. I want to give you two points of application. 
Uh, in all full disclosure, both these points are from my guy, J.C. Ryle, and these two points really were a blessing to me this week to read, and I wanted to share this with you as a way, in applica- as a way of application. The first one is this, true Christians may be sick and ill. Now, we know that, right? But the idea here is that in this text, Jesus, who has power over sickness and disease, could Jesus have prevented Lazarus from even getting sick in the first place? Right, yes. The one he loves, he loves his family, he loves Lazarus. But God thought it fit for Lazarus to be sick and in pain and suffer whatever he suffered. And the lesson is just a reminder for us that when sickness comes our way, God intends to use it for a purpose. And this is going to be a very silly illustration. But y'all know a few weeks ago after Gracie's wedding, I was really sick that night, all night long. And some of y'all heard the story of Jesse and I driving as fast as we could from Tuscaloosa back to home that morning. While y'all were in here worshiping the Lord, having a good time, I was on the floor at the Calcola gas station. No, no lie. No cap, as the kids say. And I'm laying on the floor, sick. Y'all are in here just singing praises or whatever. And I'm, like, I'm right down the road, dying. And I'm laying there going, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm just quoting Psalm 23. A couple of songs that we sing popped in my head. And I'm not joking, I'm being serious. I'm hurting so bad, and I'm thinking about Scripture. And so I get back in the vehicle. I'm like, go, go. So Jesse takes off, like Dale Earnhardt, driving up the road. We don't make it to Hamilton. I'm like, pull over. I stand up in the back of the van. She hits the brakes. I go flying up through the van. Feel so awful, nauseated. I jump out on the side of the road, all hands and knees. I'm just like, People are driving by, you know, probably after church, probably 12 o'clock or whatever. I'm like, what's up with this guy? And in and, and all honesty, as I'm doing this, I'm like, Lord, help me. <laughs> like, I'm literally praying, Lord, this hurts. And it's just a virus or whatever. A lot of people have been through a lot worse, right? I get back in the car, go. She's driving as fast as she can. All the way home, I'm just hurting. And I'm praying, like, Lord, please take this away. This really hurts. Like, this stinks. And that's just a little illustration of how I deal with sickness. Not very good. But, and I, I, and I know many people in this room have been through a lot worse of surgeries and sickness and just trials. But I want you to think about this, and I get this from Ryle, but sickness tends to draw our affections away from this world and to direct them to things above. Sickness tends to draw us to our Bible. It does for believers, I think. Sickness tends, or trials tend to send believers to prayer. Like if you don't pray a lot in general, you go through something really hard, it oftentimes will send you to prayer or more desperate prayer than before. Trials, sickness, helps to prove our faith and patience, and it shows us the real value of our hope in Christ. 
And sickness reminds us, at least a little bit, that these broken bodies will one day be done. And points us to the fact that we need to have Christ as our healer, not just physically, but uh, the healer of our soul, as our Savior. Because our, our bodies will one day die. Even though you might be sick, even though you might go through trial, even though you might go through a cancer, disease, whatever, God doesn't love you any less through that. The second and the final application related to that first one, Christ is our best friend in time of need. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. We would do well to remember this. I said earlier, I'm a believer. If you get sick, you need to go to the doctor, listen to what they say, take the medicine they prescribe. You know, we believe in that kind of stuff. We, we want to make sure we do our best to take care of ourselves. But I also think as believers, we need to remember that ultimately our best helper is no one here on this earth, but it's our Father in heaven. And though we should go to the doctor, and though we should take the medicine, though we should do all the things they tell us to do, our main hope must first be in the Lord. Job was afflicted, and his first action was to fall on his knees in worship. Hezekiah spread out his matters before the Lord, and these two sisters at Bethany sent a prayer to Christ, a message to Christ. The one you love is sick. If you're going through something this morning, or you will go through something soon, in the crushing state of pain or hurt or sorrow or suffering, let us remember none can help us like Jesus. None loves us like him. Let's pray.